And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. And I have my good friend, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. And she's uh, taking a break for a couple weeks and we had Dr. Mazir on. So how are you, Pam? I'm great. And I'm looking out the window and it's blue skies and it's, it's halfway decent weather in terms of temperature. So it couldn't be a more wonderful day. Well, lucky you're looking up and not down because there's a lot of dirty snow on the ground still. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not too bad better than it could be. That's true. Can you give us an update on your uh, COVID patients? I'm really happy to give an update because it's moving in the right direction. So last week when Dr. Mazir was here, there was 26 positive patients with three on vents and three waiting results. And this week, I'm happy to say there's only 14 positive patients in the hospital with two on vents and five awaiting results. Our deaths went from 168 to 172. Uh, DuPage County went from 75,140 positive patients to 76,009 positive patients. Deaths went from 1,244 to 1,270. And our state went from 1,170,000 positive patients to 1,180,000 positive patients, with deaths going up from 22,199 to 22,506. And for the good news, Discharges went from 1,483 to 1,518, and we consistently have a 97% recovery rate. So I can say very, very strongly that that is going to stay consistent, 97% recovery, which is a great number. And these, uh, these numbers overall aren't ramping up at the speed they were a couple months ago, so that's great news. Yeah, I, you know, hopefully this is a sign of how it will stay and that we won't have another sucker punch like we did last fall and have more patients get sick. But, you know, if everybody keeps being able to continue with their preventive methods by uh, wearing their masks and social distancing and then we get as many vaccines given as possible, I think we're going to be moving in the right direction. I kind of uh, remember hearing you tell stories in the community about that first COVID positive patient you had at the hospital and how it became real on that day. Do you remember what that date was? Uh, It will never leave my mind ever. It was March 12th. And, um, you know, it was the day that we got a call um, from DuPage County Health Department and the Cook County Health Department notifying us that we had a patient with a positive test result. And um, on that day, I was actually meeting with the city, with the um, mayor and a bunch of city members, uh, I think with Park District and the school system and several other members, just to talk about COVID when we found out we had our first positive patient. So it was like perfect timing so we could talk about what to do. But for us, it was just such a shock because this particular patient did not have any of the normal symptoms. They had not traveled had stayed at home, did not come in with a high fever. There was a lot of symptoms. She was actually being discharged when we found out that she was positive with COVID. And then she did 
actually expire. She passed away uh, probably a week or two after she became positive when we found out she was positive. But um, it was just a very sad, scary day. I remember the county came out and helped us trace every patient person who had come in contact with the patient. And it was such a overwhelming feeling. And, you know, we, we have not looked back since. It's been just trying to keep up and trying to keep everybody safe. It's been a, a really, really difficult trying time, um, but, you know, also a a building time for how we are resilient and how we help each other. Obviously, it had a lot of significance personally for you, but your entire staff had to be kind of numb and, and wondering what's going to happen next when they when they heard they had a patient, right? That and, you know, fear. The fear was just intense because nobody knew then, you know, will I get it? How, what will happen? Will I die too? Um, what, what will happen with my family? I mean, people would go home at night and they would, who were seasoned healthcare workers who had seen all kinds of tragedy and they would be, you know, having panic attacks and, and crying with their family, being afraid, but then knowing they had to come back to work because patients were depending on them. And it was, a, it took a while for people to feel safe just working and coming in, but they forced themselves to do it. And then they also to stop worrying about their families as much because they were worried they were, if they came to work that they would be contaminating their families, but if they didn't come to work that they would be letting the community and the patients down. So it was a really, really difficult time. I'm pretty good with my third R arithmetic and uh, <laughs> it's going to be less than three weeks before that first anniversary of that March 12th, 2020 date. So my question revolves around the uh, the folks that, that maybe had this disease early on that were, that had severe cases of it. And then some of those that didn't have such severe cases, what kind of lingering effects do some of those folks still have? And do only the people with severe cases tend to have those lingering effects? No, uh, you can have lingering effects whether you had severe or not severe cases. More often those that had severe cases have lingering effects because there was a lot more that went on in the body in the severe cases. And so some of the more lingering effects were lung issues, clotting issues, energy levels, um, brain fog, neurological deficits. But uh, even if you had a mild case, sometimes it, you, it takes a long time for you to get your sense of taste and smell back, a long time for you to get your energy level back. You'll feel great for a few days, and then you'll feel like you've got it again. And, um, yeah, we still don't know enough about all the long-term effects, and um, I don't, you know, there's a lot of studies going out, a lot of new things being learned every day, and I'm sure another year from now we'll look back and we'll have a lot more information, but, you know, it is interesting how some people had very little effect, and then some people have very long-term effect. I kind of remember early on hearing that some patients that were somewhat severe for a few days just almost on a dime taking a bad downturn. Are you still seeing that sometimes? No, because we actually know a lot more now and can see where they might be um, starting to get bad and being able to do some interventions early that stop them from taking that quick downturn. Uh, we've been really lucky with the medications we've had and all of the treatment modalities we've had, and that has helped us be able to stop people from just 
turning. Now, what we have seen, though, is people who throw a blood clot that we don't anticipate, and they have died after starting to feel better and ready to go home. I hear a lot of talk from people who believe that once they're vaccinated, they don't have to wear a mask anymore once they're fully vaccinated. And and I know that that's not, not the uh, guidance that we hear in the media, at least. And What's your take on that? When when you're fully vaccinated, why might you still need to wear a mask? Well, I think <laughs> I think it's wishful thinking. We would like to not wear masks. I, I understand totally why somebody would feel that way and would want to not wear a mask. But the reason why we have to wear masks is because it is still a good barrier and source of controlling uh, that you don't get exposed or expose somebody else in case you may be asymptomatic. Just because you got the vaccine it's only 95% effective, so there's still a 5% chance that you could get COVID. And if you do get it, you may not show symptoms, and then you might be exposing others, or you might get exposed yourself and get it from somebody else. So you want to keep that mask on until we have at least herd immunity where the majority of the people out there do not have COVID, and so that it will stop the spread. But we're not anywhere near herd immunity yet. Can you give an update on the percentage of the EE Health employees that have chosen to be vaccinated? Yes, we are now at 66%, so we're steadily climbing. You know, it it's, takes a lot. A lot of people are still frightened of the vaccine, and so we keep trying to educate so people will get vaccinated. So I know that the Pfizer vaccine requires two doses three weeks apart, and the Moderna two doses four weeks apart. So my question is, I've had some people ask me about getting one of those, that their second dose a little bit early, like as much as a week early with Moderna. Is that something that's not recommended? Correct. It is not recommended to get it a week early. Um, some people say they need it a day or two early, and you can have that, although that's not recommended either. Um, it's You can have it up to a week late, and that's okay, but early is not recommended. So late's a little better than, than early. A little a little late's better than a little early. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Okay. Can you give us an update on the number of folks in the group 1A that have been vaccinated through EE Health, the number in 1B, and then the total number of individuals that you've identified in group 1B? Yes. So in 1A, We've had approximately 10,125 people vaccinated. In 1B, we've had 11,868 people vaccinated. And what we had identified is in the initial 1B category, about 75,000 people. And in the 1B expanded category, another 80,000 people. So our 11,868 is just a small portion of those that could still be vaccinated. So when you say 1B expanded, it went from 75 to 80 or 75,000 plus 80,000? 75 plus 80,000. Oh my gosh. So it's it's basically doubled in. Was some of that due to, you know, obesity being added as a as a pre-existing condition that could be troublesome? Yes. And and <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go down that path really quickly because I I'm not exactly thin, but um I've read uh, on the good old Wikipedia that as many as, you know, 40 or 45% of Americans might be considered obese. 
Are, are those numbers anywhere near accurate as it relates to qualifying for a vaccine? No. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's much more specific and it's much more um, other things being added in there. It's not just the obesity component to it. But yes, there is as much as 45% of Americans are obese. You are correct there. Oh, joy. Um, has, <laughs> has the hospital um, been involved in helping, uh, and I think I know the answer to this, I think we might have talked about this before, um, in getting vaccinations for firefighters, other first responders, police officers, and if so, have, have most of those folks been able to be vaccinated that where the hospitals helped? Yes, we've partnered with our first responders, and um, anybody who comes here brings patients here or is involved with Elmhurst and in the neighboring areas, we have uh, been vaccinating them. And anyone that did not get their vaccine that is in that category, we will help try to prioritize them as we receive more vaccines so they get vaccinated. So you just gave the number on how many folks are now in Category 1B with the expansion of that category. And obviously there's a lot of people that still need to be vaccinated before we even move to 1C or before EE Health moves to 1C. So Last week, Dr. Mazir gave some doom and gloom numbers, and that was that the EE Health was going to run out of first-dose vaccines probably the next day, and it may be a couple of weeks before you get another first-dose batch of vaccines. So can you give us an update on that and what it's looking like in terms of supply? So her doom and gloom is real. So we do not know when we're going to get any more vaccines allocated for first dose, and we don't have any right now, but we do have the second doses, and we're giving those at this time. And uh, I would assume there's still a lot of those to give, so it's keeping the, the folks busy there, right? Correct. So um, nothing on the horizon, then you're really not sure when you're going to get your next dose, correct? I just want to clarify that. We do not know when we're going to get our next Dose. What we know is that um, we receive our allocations from DuPage County, and the county allocation has declined drastically over the last two weeks. And um, as soon as they have more, they'll let us know, and then we'll be able to start up again. Okay. So um, you mentioned that the second doses uh, continue to be delivered. Is there any prediction that that'll be a problem, or does that seem to be pretty solid going forward? We've never not had any problem with that, so we're not assuming we will. I think they, they have guaranteed us that if they give us the first dose, they will give us the second dose. Okay. Any updates on uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in terms of uh, when it might be approved and when it may be on the market, so to speak? So our understanding is they have filed for the Emergency Use, use Authorization, or EUA, as people call it, and um, once you file for that, usually it takes a week or two to find out the answer. So we expect to know within the next week or two. Okay. And then, so you, you probably have no idea when the supply will be there. Even if it is approved in 10 days, it could be another month or six weeks, right? Oh, we don't know. But as soon as it gets approved, Johnson Johnson is going to want to get it out. And they said they've got it available. So it'll just depend on when our state gets our doses and how our state decides to um, how the state decides to give it to the counties. Throughout uh, 2020, you had reported that a lot of um, elective procedures weren't weren't being done early on 
because you couldn't. Uh, and then when when you were reopened for elective procedures and other hospitals were too, there were some people that were uh, afraid, I guess, at first to come in. And, it, and that kind of ramped up, it sounds like, during the summer. But anyway, there were a lot of financial um, consequences to that. And the fact that reimbursements for COVID treatment were not keeping up with the cost of patient care. So how is 2021 looking as it relates to finances and the budget uh, as compared to 2020? We're in a fiscal year, which starts July to July. So if I'm thinking about a fiscal year versus a um, calendar year, if we want to just look at January being this calendar year, our January month was extremely um, low volume compared to normal January months. Uh, we were very light in inpatient surgeries, um, light in number of patients because we had less COVID patients and there wasn't flu patients or other patients taking the place of the COVID patients. So for the month of January, um, we were about um, $3 million of operating loss at Elmhurst Hospital alone and about $5 million behind budget uh, for year to date. So that would be July to now. We are about $5 million behind our budget as a whole. So for Elmhurst Hospital, um, we don't know what that means exactly. We know we're down in orthopedic surgeries. We know we're down in cardiac procedures. Um, we know that we're uh, down in general surgeries. We also are up in the number of people who are Medicaid patients, um, which is our poorest paying um, patient, you know, because the state can't afford to pay much for services. And so when that goes up, we know that impacts our overall uh, financial ability. Now, one month does not make a horrible year, so we don't know how the rest of the year will go. So we can't say that January is a sign of things to come. So we do know that um, people have not been out socializing, catching diseases from each other. We do know people are not out as much, so they're not having accidents, um, you know, and requiring surgeries. And, and I don't know, we haven't had that much snow, even though the last couple of weeks have been bad. It was a mild winter up until recently, and so uh, I think cardiac was down as well, because we do know cardiac goes up in the winter when people are out there shoveling. And I would assume ER is still down? ER is still down, yes. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if the uh, high school sports start to ramp up again, if that'll... <laughs> it's, it's, it's too bad that that we're making that connection, but obviously accidents happen, don't they? Yes, and that's the reason we're here is to help when somebody gets ill, and so we want to be available for people. Um, we just have to figure out how we can change our operations to be able to live on the type of money that's coming in, and we continue. We have smart people. We know how we'll do it, and we'll work on it. Um, it's just that taking care of COVID has cost the organization a lot more money, not just the loss of income, but it's also all the extra costs when you're talking about all the new screeners and all the um, personal protective equipment and all the cleaning supplies. And, um, and so when you have increased expenses and decreased revenues, that obviously impacts you and you have to think about how do you do business differently. I know I've asked you a lot of, in the past about how isolation due to the pandemic has, has increased 
incidences of anxiety and depression. And I want to go one step further, you know, for those that might have uh, addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, are you seeing a, a large increase in uh, patients that, that need help with that? Yes, I, I think that whenever there is the kinds of things going on in society where people feel more isolated, they're under more stress, they're more anxious, if you have a problem with addiction, it gets harder to fight that addiction and much easier to increase your drug usage. And when you increase drug usage, you increase the amount of people who overdose. Um, an issue brief published recently by the American Medical Association on February 2nd says 40 states, including Illinois, have reported increases in opioid-related mortality. The CDC states that from May of 2019 to May of 2020, they saw the highest number of opioid deaths recorded, 81,230 nationwide. And in Cook County, opioid-related deaths doubled between May of 2019 and May of 2020. Opioid deaths were also on the rise in all of Illinois. Its social isolation is the biggest contributing factor. And if people are alone, there is no one there to administer the Narcan that can help save their lives and, and so forth. That's why the increase in number of deaths. So we're very concerned for people who have uh, substance abuse issues that this stress, anxiety, and depression is going to lead to um, bigger issues with opioid deaths. And you have you do have a program at Linden Oaks, correct, to help with addiction? Yes, we do. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us again today, Pam. Uh, wel welcome back to the to the program, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Well, we ended on a down note, so I want to just end on a positive note. The positive note is spring is in the air. The positive note is COVID COVID hospitalizations have decreased. The percentage of people in the state, the rate of positivity is decreasing. So I think those are all good things. And hopefully, God willing, we will uh, see a new day soon and get somewhat back to a different kind of new reality that we like a lot better. Well, thanks for helping turn my frown upside down. <laughs> you are welcome, sir. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.